Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 10. We're going to continue on with our study in the book of Acts, specifically the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to, we have been looking at uh, numerous, what we're calling spirit reception events. And this is how Luke presents these to us. And we're going to dig into now this next one in Acts 10. I want to share a little story with you. I had a professor in seminary. His name is Dr. Rodman Williams. Uh, He has gone on to be with the Lord back in the 80s, late 80s, when I had him as my professor. He was already totally gray. And and he was, I think he was in his late 60s, maybe about 70. Um, But he kept teaching for many, many more years. And he had known the Lord for a while. He was a professor at a Presbyterian seminary in Texas, I believe it was. And he was doing very well as a professor. And in 1964, in 1964, something very amazing happened to him as he had been studying the word specifically in the book of Acts. And God, by his spirit, was ministering to him. He wanted what he read here that we are going through in all of these uh, events in which the Spirit has poured out upon people. He said, God, that's what I want. And the Spirit of God met him and filled him with his Spirit, and he began to speak in tongues. Apparently, the faculty found out about this. They walked him through this process. process of trying to bring him back to what they believed was the truth, and he discovered something so very biblical, theologically accurate, and true, and they ended up letting him go. They fired him. In his way, he had been teaching at various schools. He ended up at Regent University in Virginia Beach, where I had him. My wife had the privilege of being able to sit under his feet And he was perhaps the most humble man. As much as this man knew about the word of God, he was so humble in how he taught it. The spirit of God had used him. I can still remember because he did not want to just teach us theology. He wanted us to experience theology. So in this class, it was the second class of theology. He taught three of them. And in this second one, we were speaking very much so about the work of Christ and then concluding with the, the ministry of the Spirit and all aspects that the Spirit ministers. And he would have us as a class minister to one another and just ask God for the spiritual gifts to flow through us. And it was absolutely amazing uh, how God did that. When, the, when we as a class humbled ourselves before him and let the Spirit of God work through us. This event in his life in 1964 totally transformed his life. It transformed his teaching ministry. God began opening new doors. Even though he had gotten fired, God used him in many people's lives. I believe that this morning, many of you are sitting here. You're looking as we're putting together this chart. You're hearing the words. You're hearing scripture. And there is something that is stirring up in your heart as each week goes by. And you're saying, this is what I want. This is what I want to walk in. Maybe you've experienced something of this nature in the past, and but you, you've, you've been 
moving away from it. I want you to be able to experience then a refilling of the Spirit. So as we go through this, Acts 10 this week, Acts 19 next week, let's be praying for one another. Let's be praying and hopefully ministry after the sermon today. But let God minister to you. Let him fill you with his Spirit and encourage you to walk in everything that he has for you. Amen, church? I want to remind you of Ezekiel 47. And in Ezekiel 47, what a powerful verse. If I could preach on this every Sunday, I think I would. And it is simply this picture of the temple of God. People call it Ezekiel's temple. It's very different than Solomon's or Herod's temple. It is not going to be a temple that we will see with our eyes. It's not going to be some future temple or anything like this. This is a picture of Christ and then his church. And that's why in the New Testament, Paul refers to the temple always, by the way, the temple is the body of Christ, the church. And so in this picture of Ezekiel 47, a vision actually, he sees a, just a, a little stream flowing from the south side of the temple. And then it flows to the Arabah, which, then, which is the north portion of the Dead Sea. And as it flows into the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is no longer dead. There are fish in it, it says, of the same kind and size as the Mediterranean, huge fish. But here's something that he noticed, and I'm just reminding, because many of you are, are familiar with this passage. We even sing a song about it. But as he walked, as, he, as, as the angel that was with him walked with him for a thousand cubits, he then waded into the stream, and it was ankle deep. He then walked down another thousand cubits, and it was knee deep. Another thousand, it was waist deep. And another thousand, he tried to cross it, but he could not. Now, here is what he then says in Ezekiel 47, verse 6. Let me find my place here. Here we go. Um, excuse me, verse 5. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. Even though he would try to swim in, he could not cross it because the current was so so strong and powerful, it would sweep him down. And so he came back as he was in the water on his way back to the bank. God spoke to him and said, son of man, do you see this? Do you see how powerful the river has become? There are no tributaries leading into this river. So he is confronted with an utter phys physical impossibility. No river on its own, apart from tributaries, other sources of water merging with it can become a raging river from a stream. And as he is now coming out of this water, he sees this has become a raging river. And then he looks to the bank. And it says this. It says, then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side. And then further on, it says, so wherever the river flows, everything will live. This water, at this point, wherever it goes, whatever it touches, even the Dead Sea, it comes alive. Healing, it speaks of. John speaks of, Jesus in John speaks of this in John chapter 7, and he, he says it this way. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from him or excuse me, flow from within him. 
What I'd like you to see, and as we're going through this, I want you to see that many people in the church are simply ankle-deep, knee-deep, and waist-deep in the Spirit. The Spirit of God is in them. This is the promise. This is the, this is the prophetic word that, I, that Ezekiel has. And as we go through this book of Acts, we are seeing people come to that juncture in the river that cannot be crossed. It is powerful. Were you to try to swim across, it would carry you downstream so that you couldn't cross. And everywhere this stream flows, and may I say, remember, the temple is Christ, but it also represents the body of Christ, the church. And from you, the Spirit of God flows, and wherever that stream goes, from you, through you, and in you, in you and through you, I should say, it is going to bring life. And John, John picks up on this in what Jesus is saying. Many, though, in the church today are waist-deep, and they are content. Theologically, they feel sound. This is the indwelling spirit. This is the gift of the spirit as I read it in my New Testament Bible, and they can give you argument upon argument that what I'm going to be sharing with you is not biblical, and so I'm going to lay it before you. Each week, we're walking through this. And before we get into our text this morning, I want us to seriously consider why is it that I am urging us, urging the people of of the body of Christ to move from being content in waist-deep water to this raging river, and they think that they they are swimming and being carried by this current, but they have a thousand cubits to go. We looked at Acts chapter 8, and in Acts chapter 8, we saw something very unusual, honestly. Philip preaches, casts out demons, heals people, proclaims the gospel, and baptizes people into the name of Jesus Christ. But what he doesn't do is he does not lay hands on them to receive the empowerment of the Spirit. Within a week, maybe four days, seven days, we're not exactly sure, The apostles, John and Peter, come. They do lay hands on the Samaritans. They do pray for them. They receive the Spirit, and Scripture says Simon saw something. He saw that they had received the Spirit. Maybe tongues, may have been prophecy, may have been some other manifestation of the Spirit, but Simon saw something. And the question that people have then is, I don't get it. They believe they're baptized in water, and for up to a week, They apparently don't have the Spirit. Now, I'm going to disagree with that. They just don't have the empowerment of the Spirit. But most evangelicals, most evangelicals today would say, nope, they actually did not have the Spirit. They're considered Old Testament Christians. And God just, you know, this is a special occasion in which they just have not been, they have not, they have not received the Spirit. And I shared an illustration with you, because when we go through the book of Acts, we need to be careful that what Paul describes as the reception of the Spirit is not necessarily what Luke uses in describing the reception of the Spirit. We saw that Paul 
uses this idea of receiving the Spirit at when we are regenerated. The Spirit has got to be in you to be regenerated. The Spirit has got to be in you to wash away your sins, to adopt you then into his family, Romans 8. And we looked at a number of these, to sanctify you. The Spirit is in you to sanctify you. And all of these things start right at the moment we believe, not a week later. And so we would say there, there is something about this delay that we need to examine. People use two objections to this. So as I'm walking you through this and I'm having us see a pattern, there are others, the majority of evangelicals are saying, wait, 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 hang on a second. There are two objections that I have, and I'm going to walk you through these objections rather quickly, two of them, and then we're going to move into our text and we're going to see two things, two takeaways that I believe the Spirit of God is going to speak to your hearts about. The first thing that people says is, Mike, you know, when you look through the book of Acts, understand this, it is history. It is a narrative. It's different than the epistles. And therefore, here's the phrase they use. It is descriptive and not prescriptive. In other words, it's describing events, but it is not like the epistles that prescribe how we ought to live. So it describes how they lived, but it doesn't prescribe. It doesn't tell you how to live. So it is historical, but not normative. Meaning, um, we shouldn't look at the book of Acts and say, oh my goodness, they had all things in common, so we need to hurry up and have all things in common. And that's their application, that's what they would say. Now, I, I have a problem with this, because even though Acts is descriptive, we have to remember, why is Luke sharing any of this with us. There's so many things that happened in the early church, my friends, that he could have talked about. But when we come within eight verses of this book, this is the verse we encounter, and you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my, what church? Do you remember? My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is one of the main themes of this book. He then chooses five examples of this pouring out of the Spirit so that people would be transformed and be bold witnesses, the very major theme of this book. So he gives us five examples. Please understand, he could have given, he, he, he had access to hundreds, if not thousands of testimonies of people receiving the Spirit and being empowered. So our question is, Luke, why did you choose Five. Why did you choose these five? It is not accidental or coincidental. It is very purposeful. Now, let me ask you this. If you were teaching a class and you said, here is the premise of what I want to teach you today, and then you gave five examples. Listen to me now. You gave five examples to back up what you're teaching and at the very end, you said, and oh, by the way, those five examples that I gave you will never, ever happen again. What is your response? Wow, Mike, like, uh, thanks for nothing. Nice history lesson, totally unrelatable, irrelevant in my life. I can glean maybe a few things, but pff, I'm like at a loss. What do, I, what do I apply to my life, Mike? 
I would venture to say that someone who taught that way is not a very good teacher. Not a very good teacher. So as we come to the book of Acts, and we know for sure that one of the main things that he's trying to teach is the empowerment of the Spirit to be witnesses. And then he uses five examples to teach us, hey, we need to clue in. What is it that he's teaching us? What is it? That, what are the observations that we have, and what are some of the takeaways? And we should not say, of those five things, we observe prayer, laying on of hands, water baptism, delay, evidence, water baptism before or after, and say about all of that, it's never going to happen like that again. You don't need to pray to receive the Spirit. When you're giving your heart to Christ, you don't need to ask for the Spirit. He's just going to give it to you anyway. So we don't pray. Laying on of hands. A theological term there is human agency. You don't need someone. God doesn't need someone to do the work for him. He doesn't need someone to lay hands on someone to receive the Spirit. You're at the altar. You're wherever, crying out to God. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't need someone to lay hands on you to receive the Spirit. As a matter of fact, there is absolutely no delay ever and so they go back to Acts 8, which they see is the only one that should have a check mark here, and we're going to find that not to be the case. And they say, wait, let, let me just tell you why God allowed that one exception. And they give their reason. There was opposition between the Samaritans and the Jews. In order for the Samaritans in coming into the kingdom to be under the proper authority, apostolic authority of the Jerusalem church and to sanction Philip's mission, that it is not some maverick mission, but it's, you know, it's got the uh, authority of the apostles, Peter and John had to come. The problem that we have with, and therefore, it's an exception to this rule. So apparently, even after Pentecost, we see that for four days to one week, apparently, there is one case in which the Samaritans did not have the Spirit in them. Don't ask me how they got regenerated. That contradicts the New Testament teaching in the New Covenant. Don't ask me how that they were sanctified or sins washed away or adopted into the family of God. We have no clue why. All we can say is, well, my best guess is, even though there is, listen to this, there is absolutely no hint of what I just shared with you in that chapter or in the entire book of Acts. No evidence. The evidence that we have is that they were, it says this, they, only, they were only baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. The only thing then that Philip did was baptize them. And we took up three weeks ago, we looked at this and we discovered, then what does it mean he didn't do? He didn't lay hands on them. He didn't pray for them. That's what he didn't do. And as we looked at Acts, we realized, you know what, the reason why he probably did not do that is because the apostles laid hands on him and set a precedent, well, you know what? I guess apostles have to lay hands on people. I is that true? Well, guess what? The very next story is the Ethiopian eunuch. He did not lay hands on the Ethiopian eunuch either. He did not pray for the Ethiopian eunuch either that Luke tells us. Luke anticipates this question in the reader's mind. Well, Luke, are you trying to teach me through these examples that apostles are the only ones that can lay hands on people to receive the Spirit? Well, guess what? The very next story, Acts chapter 9, is the story of guess who? My favorite personal New Testament 
aside from Jesus. Character is Paul, the apostle Paul. And guess who lays hands on him? Some apostle? Was it James? Was, was it John? Luke says, a disciple by the name of Ananias. This is just a, he's not even a leader that we're told. A disciple. Lays hands on Paul, and he's healed, and he's filled with the Spirit, and he boldly proclaims the gospel. At once, we are told. And so I'm going to suggest to you, and, and not only prayer, laying hands on, but, and delay, but evidence. Today, evangelicals, they say, we don't, we don't no, we're, we're, that's not applicable. That's bygone days. That's the apostolic age. You know, when you receive Christ, and apparently they say that you receive the Spirit, as Acts tells us, you don't need to speak in tongues. And there are those that believe that tongues are still for today and still say, no, the baptism of the Spirit happens at conversion. I'm telling you, that is not what Luke teaches us. Because if he is saying that the Spirit is received at conversion, let's just take our marker or eraser and rub all the way through this. There's no need for prayer, no need for laying on of hands. Forget about the question of water baptism, irrelevant. There's absolutely no delay. Happens at right, at right away, and there will never be any evidence. We don't need this anymore. So let's just take the book of Acts and put it on the shelf. And the only thing it ministers to us is, hey, you know what? Maybe you should witness today. I'm going to suggest to you, if this is a major theme, and even though it's history, he is teaching us using five examples, not five examples that will never happen again, five examples that are absolutely relevant for this generation. And the second objection is, they say, Acts is transitional. Maybe you've heard about that. So the first one is that Acts, if you're taking notes, number one, Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. The second objection is Acts is transitional. We're going to see an example of that. Peter, under the law, he is being asked to rise, kill, and eat unclean animals, and he can't do it. This happens three times, and he refuses. He opposes God. And we, we do see people like Peter transitioning. We see a number of other examples of transitioning. But here's our problem. Can I ask you this? Because the people, the church transitions, does that mean that God does? Does that mean that God saved people differently back then? Does that mean that God worked miracles back then but doesn't today? Does that mean that God regenerated people differently? Well, apparently for the Samaritans, he did. See, transition. I'm going I'm, I'm to say, I'm going to object to that objection. Acts is transitional only for the church. Listen, it is not transitional in any way for God. From Pentecost on, God saves people the same. He does miracles on their behalf the same. He answers prayer the same by faith. He fills people, baptizes people, pours his spirit out upon them the same way. He still does it. He does not withhold his spirit and that there is... is no presence of the Spirit 
in their lives, as in Acts 8, so people say. The Spirit wasn't in them for maybe up to a week. We cannot say that God is transitional. We cannot say God is transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant. And in this transition, there are a few hiccups. God does not hiccup, church. He truly does not. And I'm going to suggest to you that everything that we read here in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10, and Acts 19 is for us today. It is not for bygone days. We are still told to pray, lay hands on, expect evidence of the Spirit of God in our lives. We're, we're expected when we're empowered by the Spirit, it will not always happen at conversion. As a matter of fact, we're going to see of these four, I'm going to exclude number two. That's the first time the Spirit is given. I'm going to just take that off the table. I'm going to look at these four, eight through nine. We're going to see that there is no transition here. Excuse me. There is no delay in this chapter we're going to read, but in Acts 19, there is. So three out of the four, there is delay. So I'm going to suggest to you that when we read the book of Acts, it is not just descriptive but it is purposefully prescriptive. He just uses a different method to teach us. He uses history rather than normative type of language, commands. This is what I want you to do. This is how I'm going to do it. He uses examples to show us. So let's do that. Let's dig into this. Let's try and draw some rich application. We've got about 20 or so minutes here. I want us to be able to to grasp some of these truths, so you're there with me. Acts chapter 10, I want to pick up with verse 9. Understand that Cornelius is who we're going to focus on, and he is a Roman centurion. He is a God-fearing man, and he has been giving gifts to the poor, and he has been truly seeking after God, and God, an, an angel appears to him, and God speaks to him and says, I want you to go, send men, go to Joppa tells him exactly where to go, to Simon the Tanner's house, and I want you to get a man by the name of Simon Peter. Not Simon the Tanner. Simon Peter is staying in Simon the Tanner's house. I know that's confusing for you, but just do that. Look for Simon the Peter, and so they go there. In the meantime, on their way, we pick up the story in verse 9 about noon. The following day. As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He, began, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, so Simon's, Simon's servants are preparing a meal, he, has, he fell into a trance. It says he saw heaven opened and something like a... So he's a vision. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, he replied. So this tells us right now, he recognizes who it is speaking with him. He doesn't say, get behind me, Satan. He doesn't say, oh, I, help, I hate this uh, self-talk. You know, these thoughts in my mind, they're just so irrelevant sometimes, such intrusions into my prayer time. I'm so distracted in my prayer. No, he recognizes right away, this is God speaking to him. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. He is a kosher Jew. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. 
This happened three times. After it happened three times, the men from Cornelius' house arrived, and God told him to go with them. This is preparation. This is God saying to Peter, this is my plan. And Peter's wrestling with that plan. Because the premise is, Gentiles are not unclean. See, that to, to, to eat an unclean animal, that comes directly from Leviticus. To not go into a Gentile's home does not come from the Old Testament. It comes from the traditions of men. Granted, based on certain passages that rabbis put together, and I'm not going to walk you through those passages, they came to the conclusion, therefore, don't go into an, a, a Gentile's house, or his uncleanness will make you unclean. His ceremonial uncleanness will make you ceremonially unclean. And so Peter is, he, there's opposition in his heart, but he agrees to go because he really does want the will of God. God just challenged him to do something that was beyond his ability to grasp, apprehend, even though Jesus said in Mark 7, in his ministry on earth, he said certain things, and Mark concludes, therefore, Jesus pronounced all foods clean. So even though that was true, Peter's grappling with this. He goes anyway. He then comes into Cornelius' house in Caesarea, and he is asked to preach. He's told the story of Cornelius' vision, and I'm going to pick up at the very end of his sermon in verse 43. Are you with me? Acts 10, 43. He's concluding his sermon this way. All the prophets testify about him, Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In one verse, we have, in essence, the gospel. Peter is interrupted by God himself. He is probably going to be giving some sort of altar call. Who knows and God just says, nope, you're done. Here's, what, here's how God did it. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking, these words that I just read to you, these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter, the fellow Jews, were astonished. <gasps> what? Sorry, I added that. The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. This is how they knew this. And then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them a few days. Can I just tell you, Peter is wrestling. Peter is wrestling as he is coming into this Gentile home. I am sure there's just this sense of awkwardness. He has never done this before. He has certainly never eaten an unclean food. And now, being in a Gentile home, there is this sense of awkwardness. But he's really trying hard to obey the Lord. And he begins to preach. And before he is even done, the Spirit of God falls. All he mentions is faith in Jesus. 
and your sins will be washed away. And all I can conclude is that by the time he hit that period at the end of the sentence, there was faith in Cornelius' heart, and there was faith in, it says, his relatives and friends had gathered there with him, his household and his friends that he knew. He had invited all of them to listen to Peter preach. All of them at that moment, believed in Jesus Christ, sins washed away, spirit of God falls on them, and they begin to speak in tongues and praise God. Peter is absolutely amazed by this. Absolutely amazed. As a matter of fact, he is so amazed when he is confronted by Other circumcised believers, look in chapter 11, verse 2. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, the other apostles included, criticized him and said, you went into the house of of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Peter, are you out of your mind? You know the word of God? You know the tradition of the elders? This this is not right. And then Peter begins to describe the amazing thing that God did. So let me just walk through this. In Acts 10, the Spirit obviously is poured out. Did anybody pray for them to receive the Spirit? We were going to say, nope. Nobody prayed for him. Did anybody lay hands on them to receive? Did, did Peter go around and say, oh, my goodness, we better hurry up and lay hands up, 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 all the way around the room, laying hands on all of them? Okay, good. I laid hands on everybody, and now they're speaking in tongues. No, he didn't do this. Spirit of God just fell. They began to praise God and speaking in tongues. No one laid hands on them. Was it before or after water baptism? It was before water baptism. They received the Spirit before they were water baptized. Was there delay? Absolutely not. No delay whatsoever. Soon as faith left in their hearts, the very second it did, they were filled with the Spirit. Not so in chapter 9 with with Paul, not so in chapter 8 with the Samaritans, and, well, chapter 2, there was plenty of faith there before Pentecost. How about evidence? Oh, absolutely. The only check mark of the four here, of these four open boxes. If we were to step back and we were to look at this and say, what so far, what can you glean from this? What is Luke trying to say? I believe we would come away, and we're gonna f- we'll be better at it next week in assessing um, when we've done chapter 19. But so far, we would say, you know what? It seems that prayer is fairly common. Not always, because it didn't happen in Acts 10. So we would say, generally speaking, though not always, people prayed for them to receive the Spirit, and they did. The next one, we would look at it and say, you know what? Well, it didn't happen in Acts 2. No one laid hands on the 120, and they received the Spirit. But we did see that in chapters 8 and and chapter 9. But in chapter 10, no one laid hands on them. So we could say, well, generally speaking, and especially in view of Hebrews 6, 1 to 3, that speaks of laying on of hands for the reception of the Spirit as a basic teaching of Christ, we'd have to say, generally speaking, we are to lay hands on people, and they will receive the Spirit, but not always. We would have to say, well, is it done before or after baptism? 
I would have to say yes. Yes, it is done before, and yes, it is done after, but it is happens around that time. We know that because there is delay in all but one, the chapter we just read. We're going to see it next week. There was delay. Evidence. We would have to say generally, so for the delay, excuse me, generally, we would say generally, there is delay in the baptism, the empowerment of the Spirit, because you were going to find believers waist deep in the Spirit, and when they're baptized, they then go to that place a thousand cubits down, and I'm working off of Ezekiel 47, understand, and that's where the river becomes a raging river, cannot be crossed, life is everywhere, the power of God is, and the King James actually uses the word healed, the waters were healed. Now, we would have to say, generally speaking, there is delay, but not always. As we look at evidence of the Spirit, we don't see any evidence of the Spirit. Even though Paul spoke in tongues, when the Spirit, when he was filled with the Spirit, Luke doesn't tell us that he began to speak in tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul does say, I'm so glad that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but... He did speak in tongues, but apparently just not when he was baptized in the Spirit. So we cannot say that every time you're filled with the Spirit, you will immediately speak in tongues. We can't say that. What we can say is, generally speaking, there is a manifestation or evidence of the Spirit when you're baptized in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit or the Spirit is poured out upon you, but not always. And may I just say, even though Paul apparently did not speak in tongues right away, we did learn that at once he began to walk in that fresh empowerment of the Spirit, and it says he began to speak boldly the Word of God in the synagogue. So even though there may not be an evidence, I'm going to suggest to you that when you were baptized in the Spirit, there is a significant change as you now are trying to cross this river that is waiting, raging, and you're being swept down with the current. So I believe when we, when in all fairness to what Luke's objective is and why he's using these five, he is saying, you know what? If you want a formula for how it all happens, sorry, I can't give it to you. I can't give it to you. But what I can say is this. Generally speaking, we pray, or people pray for the reception of his general, though it doesn't happen always. Generally speaking, we lay hands on them to receive the Spirit, but not always. Generally speaking, there is delay, but not always. Generally speaking, there is evidence and manifestation of the Spirit, but not always. That is what we can say. That would be a very fair conclusion. I want us to walk through something right now that's going to lead us now into some application. It is interesting that Peter, an apostle, has opposed God three times. This is God's man of power for the hour, and he is opposing God at a crucial juncture in the church. For the very first time, Gentiles are about to get saved, and Peter is having an argument with his God. Here is... The challenge. Here is the question that I am going to ask that Scripture does not answer. Peter, can I ask you a personal question? 
If the Spirit of God did not fall on, the P, on Cornelius' house, would you have laid hands on them to receive the Spirit? I'm, I can only suggest to you that he would not have. And so for that reason, remember, we're, going, we're looking at this concept of delay. And every single one but this one, there is delay. And my natural question is, well, that's interesting. God can do whatever he wants to do, I suppose. He doesn't change, okay? But why does he give them the spirit right away? And I am going to suggest through several scripture passages from Luke that it's because Peter would not have done it. The first one that we see, so in, in essence, what I'm saying is, regardless of what most evangelicals with regard to delay say is that Acts 8 is the exception to the general rule, that there generally is no delay, and so from Acts on, there never will be, I'm going to say I disagree with that. Actually, when we look at the text, the exception to the rule of delay is actually found in Acts 10, and Luke tells us why. How does he do that? Look at chapter 10, verse 47. What is their response? Peter and the others with him, when the Spirit of God falls on them and they begin to speak in tongues, what word does he use? My Bible says they're astonished. They are astonished. They can't believe what is happening. They're stepping back and they're saying, what? This doesn't make sense. The Gentiles, apparently they're getting saved. Then look at verse 47. Peter says, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? Why would he word it that way? Why wouldn't he say, oh my goodness, they're saved, let's baptize them? And he, No, he words it in the negative fashion. Can anyone keep them from being baptized? Because the obvious Jew is thinking, we can't baptize them. They're unclean Gentiles. But Peter has become convinced otherwise. And, and, and he's astonished, and he's saying, I, I have no explanation for this except God is going to save the Gentiles now, I guess, starting with Cornelius' house. Who can keep them from being baptized? And then we look at verse 48. So what does he do? He ordered. He didn't suggest. He didn't say, okay, the next thing that we're going to do right now, guys, is you're going to get baptized. He ordered them to be baptized. And I'm going to imagine there were so many people in that room. That order is given not just to those in the room. Hey, you know what? The next step, guys, you need to get baptized. This is the command of Jesus Christ. But he is now speaking also to his fellow Jews. Guys, I order you to baptize them into the name of Jesus Christ. Because if I don't give you that order, I don't think you're going to do it. Excuse me. I'm filling in. I'm speculating here a bit. But he orders them to be baptized. He is not just speaking to them. This is the commandment of the Lord, but he is speaking to his fellow Jews. I'm ordering you. Why? There's hesitancy. These are unclean Jews. You're asking me now to touch them? I'm doing good enough, Peter, by being here in this, this Gentile's home. Give me a break. You really want me to baptize them? I order you to baptize them into Christ Jesus. And so they do this. We get a little bit more of a clue that this is this, why God is having to do this rather than have Peter do the normal way of laying hands and praying for them or anybody for that matter. When we come, and I've already read the verse, in verse 2, chapter 11, he says, when he arrives in Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, including the apostles, mind you, criticized him. Peter, what are you doing? And I'm going to couple that now with verse 18. 
It says, after he explained everything that happens, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. I'm reading a little bit into how I'm saying that, but you, you get the feel of this. And then I can conclude with this. Look at verse 17. And then I'm going to transition into some application here. It says, Peter says, so if God gave them, Gentiles, if God gave them the same gift, that is the gift of the Holy Spirit, as he gave us on Pentecost, Acts 2, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Even though, as he just confessed earlier in this chapter, actually verse 10, he did oppose God. Three times he opposed God. But now that God stepped in and said, thank you, Peter, you've done a great job so far, I'll take it from here. And God baptizes them. Jesus Christ actually baptizes them in the Holy Spirit. Because I'm going to, my sense is that because Peter wouldn't have done it. That's the exception. So I want you to think about this. I right now want you to consider some people in your life, like Cornelius, that at least in Peter's mind, last people on earth that would ever get saved because they're not Jews. Because in Peter's mind, when he heard Jesus say, go into all the world and preach the gospel, he understood go into all the world and preach the gospel to the Jews, to the diaspora, but not to the Gentiles. And this is rocking Peter's boat. And it's rocking all of the believers in Jerusalem's boat. Can I ask you, in your life, who is the last person that you would expect to be saved? For me, I would say in my life, the last person to be saved would have been, years ago, I would have said this, my brother Rob. My brother Rob was a big guy. You've met him. He was a bouncer in a bar. And he was the guy that got punched in the face in, ball, in barroom fights trying to kick people out who were drunk. He had to deal with the pagans, I mean, the gang, pagans, to the degree where the president of the pagans in Philadelphia had my brother on his blacklist. And if you ever encounter him, don't think a second time, take his life. My brother apparently had offended a number of the pagans by kicking them out of the bar that he was the bouncer of. My brother had gotten into numerous fights. He would be the last person that I would expect ever to come to Jesus. And so for about five years, church, I say this to my own disgrace, for five years I had not prayed for my brother's salvation, though up to that point I probably prayed for him at least every week and maybe a few years before that nearly every day. I'd become wearied in praying for him. Can I ask you this? Who have you become wearied praying for? You used to pray for them so much, but there is such obstinance and such a heart that, that wants to move away from God. We see a person just like that. Luke introduced us to him 
in chapter 9. The church probably thought, yeah, the last person in the world that will probably ever get saved is that dude, Saul from Tarsus. He is so obstinate. He persecutes. In his own testimony, he says that he actually had people put to death. You do not want to tangle with that man. He will find a way to put you in jail and have you killed. The last person that I think Jesus would probably save will be Saul of Tarsus. Surprise. God's grace. Even in the midst of our opposition, I'm not going to pray for that guy. I'm certainly not going to witness to him. Okay, fine. I get it. He'll probably want to kill you. So I'm going to do that. And God's grace in chapter 10 met face to face with Peter's opposition. Now understand, Peter's opposition wasn't, I'm in your face, I will never do what you. Peter's heart was humble, but he was being asked to do something that is, God, you're asking me to do something I just can't do. Maybe God is asking you to witness to this person and you're saying, but God, he's the last person or she's the last person that I could witness to. It's my boss. They're going to fire me. Can I tell you, God's grace is so amazing. And if he's wanting you to witness to that boss, he is going to present to you an opportunity. And you're going to find yourself at the water cooler. You're going to find yourself, the boss is starting to share with you and a tear is rolling down their eye. And you're saying, is everything okay? And they're going to look around, and they're going to lean in. They're going to say, you know what? Actually, not everything. My 19-year-old son was in a car accident this Friday night, and he passed away. I don't even know why I'm here at work. This is, I'm devastated. And you begin to share a personal story from your own life of how in the midst of your tragedy, God stepped in. And you struggled so much. And you have your boss's ear. And as your boss is listening, you begin to share your own personal testimony with the last person on earth you ever expected to witness to. And they choose to follow Jesus. I shared a hypothetical story with you just now. Can you believe that something like that could happen in your life? Even though you may be, God, you're asking me to do something that's beyond, I I, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't. God still can because God's grace is so much bigger than any man's opposition, including Saul of Tarsus. I want you to chew on that for just a moment. I can remember a personal trial that I was going through. And I'm now wanting to take this concept of God's grace overriding our opposition. Some years ago, when I was trying to start the church and we planned a big event, a spaghetti dinner, and I sent out flyers like everywhere in this seminary and I talked with some of them and when we actually did it, you know how many people came? And I don't mean three, zero. And I just, oh, stiff upper lip, okay, God's still going to do it. But I tell you what, at the end of the day, I was just said, God, come on. I feel like I'm trying to obey you. And 
this was a complete embarrassment for me. Where are you in this, God? You called me down here. I uprooted my family. I'm starting a business. And I'm now trying to start a church and nothing? I, I, I mean, maybe a token of one or two, but nothing? And I wrestled with God. I was in his face. I'm walking, along, walking around the, the car dealership lots, and me and God are having a grand old conversation, and I thought I was winning. God, I don't understand this, and I don't understand that. And how could you do this? And where were you last night? Where were you whenever it was? I, I, apparently nowhere. Have you called me here to just leave me? And I just began to remember, yeah, the Israelites said that one day, didn't they? Did you call us out here into the desert to die? And I was wrestling with God, and God spoke to me, church, right there. I can tell you the name of the dealership, where I was. And, and I'm not going to tell you the name because I don't want you to go to that dealership and expect to hear God's voice, okay? <laughs> Though he could do that. But there I was on that dealership lot walking it, and an unbeliever walks up to me, and out of the blue, he says, so how's business? And I'm saying, you know, it's, it's a bit of a struggle. And this is what he says, out of the mouth of an unbeliever. He says, you know what, Mike? All you need to do is persevere. And he said that three stinking times. <laughs> and when he walked away, I was speechless. I knew right then and there, God just spoke through this donkey. No, it, that's, that's an Old Testament illusion. God just, he wasn't. God just spoke through this unbeliever to me. And there are ways in which I very obviously knew he was an unbeliever. He just spoke to me three times. Persevere. Okay, God. I guess you're trying to give me a clue what I'm supposed to do right now. But my faith is so weak. And I'm going to suggest some of you right now this morning, that's exactly where you are. You feel beaten up by life circumstances. Maybe just one circumstance in particular. You are weary. And you're having this grand old conversation with God and you think you're winning. You think your arguments are foolproof. You think that God... You truly are not being just or fair in my life right now. And here are the three reasons why I'm saying that. And I am right. Where are you? And God right now is speaking to you while he's chuckling. Oh, my grace. My grace is even in the face of opposition, I will conquer. I will come through. Can you persevere? And I am speaking to you now. Can you have right now today just a mustard seed of faith? Because Jesus said, that's all you need. I'll take care of the rest. You can be hurt right now. I understand that. You can be angry with me. We'll work on that. You can be obstinate and digging your heels in, but I just need a mustard seed of faith. And so on that lot, that day, 
I offered up to God with clenched teeth my mustard seed of faith prayer. And it went something like this. God, I have absolutely no clue where you are right now. I don't understand at all my circumstances. But right now I am, trust, I am choosing to trust in you in this hardship. Help me have more faith and yield to your ways. Work in this problem, whether I can see it or not, for your glory alone. You know, one of the things that I just enjoy as a church, as, as a pastor, is when I know you personally and the incredible hardship that you are going through, the devastation, and when we are worshiping God, you are there on your face, worshiping him with all of your heart, with a surrendered heart to him. I can remember when Sarah had lost her baby, and that Sunday when I came in, there she was on her face, worshiping God. I'm sure that she and Mike were going through perhaps the hardest time in their life. And they worshiped God. In your struggle today, is there a mustard seed of faith? In your opposition towards God, can you yet bend the knee one more time? And you can say, God, I'm struggling. Help me now. And I choose to trust in you. Can you stand with me? Don't stand on lies. Church, don't stand on lies. Your observations of what's going on in your life, the devil's whispering in your ear, you're rejected, you're not loved, you're kicked to the curb, God has abandoned you, and they are all lies. Stand on the truth. Let's do that right now. Can we turn the lights out? So, Father, that's what we're going to do right now. We fall and pray to these lies. And they are tearing us up. I appeal to your goodness. I appeal to your parting of the Red Sea. Do that in my life, please. I appeal to you standing in that boat and saying, peace be still and the storm was calm. The wind stopped and the waves died down. God, please do that in my life today. I appeal to your grace that is beyond my understanding that at least right now I can't see. Pour it out lavishly. Forgive me for my anger and my hurt and my arguments and just come right now, God. 
I don't, I don't understand. I don't have answers to my questions. All I know is your grace is more than enough. And that it is stronger and more powerful than my opposition to you right now. Would you come right now, Spirit of God, and heal my broken heart? Would you come right now and would you touch my life however you choose? I will trust in you, God, right now. Step in. Have your way. You work it all out for my good and for your glory. I don't understand. But your grace is more than enough. That's my mustard seed of faith prayer to you right now, God. I, I, I can't even pray more. And I am asking you, Lord, that for every single person who joined me in that prayer, that your grace would be poured out. If that prayer included a lost one, a relative, a family member, a neighbor, a close friend, would you save them? Would you pull them out of darkness, God, by your grace? And would you establish their feet on the rock of Jesus Christ? Would you bring them from death to life? Would you speak truth into their inward parts? And may there be a faith that would respond to your grace and raise them up, Lord God. Would you heal this person I've been praying for years? Would you step down and reach into their life and heal them? Oh, Lord, you are so full of love. Allow me to see that. Today I'm making a choice. I'm going to stand on the truth. I'm going to abandon these lies. And I'm going to follow and pursue you, God. Please. Please step into my life right now. And set things right. You are God and I am not. You are so good. I appeal to that.